This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and today is a man who, really like a stalwart of Australian podcasting, uh, was on one of the most internationally renowned and amazing podcasts called Hell is for Hyphenates, and then invited me on the show and left the podcast before I could be on there with him. <laughs> he is a filmmaker. Um, you probably see him on the Twitter sphere as Cinema Viscera. His flick, Trench, um, opened up the Setting Sun Film Festival and is going to be released by Bounty Film, so we're going to see it. It's also going to be going to Lido Cinemas in Hawthorne. He is Paul-Anthony-Nelson. Sir, welcome to One Heat Minute. I am hyphen honoured. Thank you so much for inviting me on here, Blake. And I'm glad you didn't bail. No, didn't bail this time. Didn't get in, ring in a new co-host for the day. Um, but no, I, I missed you by one uh, one epic episode. I missed you. You to seriously off did. And it was, it was like, and, I recorded my finale, and then the next month, Blake Howard. There it like, is. Oh. Oh. And it was about Michael Mann, too. We would have had a field day. I know. I would have loved it. Yeah. So we've, um, you know, th- th- this is this is one of the great benefits of doing One Heat Minute. I get to talk to great people such as Paul. But what happens is there's usually text or DM back and forth. And the people who really love heat, like Paul really loves heat, all of the conversations start with, you know, logistics first. And then they devolve into just quote-offs um, of heat, which is my favorite kind of text conversation. Like if you if you add lines from heat in a text that you send to me, you are definitely getting a response first <laughs> over far more important messages that are coming down the pipe. So, um, wow, we're at the fifty fifth minute, mate. You've uh, you've come in in the in the first hour of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, al- almost a third of the way through. I know. It's, um, it's on your on your Herzogian journey. It's like I want to. I want to get to the heart of Michael Mann's heat. I want to drag an entire 170. You know what I want to do? I want to break a 170-minute movie into 170 pieces. <laughs> that's exactly recorded that, over that, 170 hours. That, that's there's there's only there's only a few people in the world that um that can really espouse a, a love of and an obsession with cinema like uh, like Werner. So thank you for coming being a guest with Paul on the podcast, Werner, um, because it's really, you know, I'm, I hope I'm doing you and your ethos of loving cinema proud, obsessively. I don't even know what a podcast is. I just sat down and was handed a phone. Oh, bless, bless. But yeah, so we're here. We're, we are... Um, Aguirre, uh, Aguirre, The Wrath of Blake. I think you called it Man Caraldo. I'm happy with either of those titles. Um, they are fantastic. Uh, but yeah, so we're here. We're right in the thick of it, mate. And you're a, fi- you're a, you're a filmmaker, releaser machine. You've also announced that you've got another flick coming out, a ghostly mystery called Inheritance. That's the working title. 
That is the working title because it's likely going to change, but that was that's the title we've been working with. Um, but the film won't change. Um, it's just we noticed there was another recent film called Inheritance, yes. and uh, unfortunately we can't have them killed. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes, but no, we're um, we're currently uh, looking for financing for that. We've opened it up to um, tax deductible donations via the Australian Cultural Fund. So if you check out Australian Cultural Fund Inheritance. Um, and you'll find us and our page. Uh, we're also sort of open to, you know, uh, product placement opportunities and things like that because we're trying to make a sustainable micro-budget film studio, which is insane. Yes. Um, we made our first film, Trench, as you mentioned, for $28,000, and we've got a couple of theatrical screenings of that and then releasing it on DVD via Bounty and as well as uh, iTunes, uh, Amazon, and Google Play, and that'll that, – that, portion will be released in about august but yeah we, we're sort of just trying to make one after the other and put one foot in front of the other really so yeah Man, we're, we're, we're on that, that budget crazy. on that budget on that budget surely surely that's a that's a something that's sustainable you guys are doing god's work that's clerks <laughs> that's clerks 1994 budget you are you are doing you are doing the thing I think when we shot, because um, there were some other little things, but at one point we were 27,363 and <laughs> Clerks is 27,575. It's like, wow, even in 2008, we're ju- 2018, we're just behind Clerks. So uh, I thought that was really nice. That is nice. That's good. God, I, I don't envy your spreadsheets and organization making independent films and grinding like you guys are doing, but super admirable, and I can't wait to check it out. I'm not I'm not based in Melbourne for the Lido Cinema's release, but I will be catching it on Bounty um, for sure. And uh, and congrats, man! You're you're one of you're one of the good guys um, from anyone who's listening and knows Hellas for Hyphenates. And obviously, we've had Lee on the show um, as well just before Paul. But um, but yeah, just well done, and I can't wait to see the flick. Thank you very much, sir. Can't wait to show it to you. I'm hoping to score maybe a little screening in Sydney somewhere yes. over the next couple of months, yes. but we're working on that behind the scenes. Love to hear about that. But also, mm. just on a complete random tangent, maybe you know this lobby that's just gone to Netflix about 30% of content being actually Australian um, in our country, maybe that uh, that lobby that's gone off to the government will be successful soon, and in oh. which case then, uh, you know, some financing of some micro-budget, um, awesome genre-ness um, that you are making in your micro-budget studio would uh, would fit in nicely there, Paul, I would have thought. That, that would be a dream, <laughs> to have the Swanberg deal, you know, one yeah. film or little TV series each year. Oh, That would a... be that. That'd be it. That is That's good. exactly what we'd love. So, so he's hoping. He's hoping. Fingers and everything <laughs> crossed for you. <laughs> 55th minute of Michael Mann's LA crime opus from 1995. Heat. Before we jump into it, Paul, what's your relationship with Heat? Because I know you, you, you're a, you love a muscular crime movie. You're a godfather aficionado from way back. Uh, um, mm-hmm. with, and and so this would have been heaven um, on a pl- delivered to you on a platter in 1995 in Can- December. Can I tell you about how I first heard about Heat? Because this is probably quite unique among your uh, guests so far. So being a 19-year-old film buff in 1994, it was a very different landscape. You know, there's no internet. There's no uh, kind of... Everything we sort of learned was through Entertainment Tonight, or in some cases uh, with me, I was very lucky. I was working in the city at the time, in, in the city of Melbourne, and there was... A news agent nearby that used to sell variety. Oh, great. And so I started... Probably a month or two late, but yeah, absolutely. The fact that it's there. (laughs) Yeah, it was like a month and a half after publication, (laughs) but weekly. So I was like picking up 
weekly varieties. I had a stack of them until a few years ago. Um, so I was looking through variety and they'd occasionally have like a kind of a classified section of films coming out. And I used to just trawl that and just have a look through time. And you know, it's just titles, what cast are attached, what director, producer, writer. And I saw this heat stars, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. And I was like, what? What, what is this? What, <laughs> why, why have I not heard about this anywhere else? Like what? Like, because, you know, there was no announcement. There was no, like, oh, such and such has tapped, you know, no deadline post. Such and such has tapped to do this. Like, it was just this little item tucked away in variety. And I was, like, they were my, basically, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Bruce Willis, Robin Williams, and Michael Keaton were kind of my my go-to five actors at that point in my life. Like, they were, like, the five. Not a bad five. Not a bad five, especially at that time. Definitely. And so I would just, it's like, and of course, as you say, I was a Godfather super fan. And it's like, what the, the Corleones are me? Like, this is freaking amazing. And so my whole, um, I, I became super hyped for this film um, in a way that's sort of, you know, like, I don't, I don't know, like the hype machine really started to gain speed and power around the internet age, you know, and people, you know, gagging for these sort of, uh, you know, Star Wars films and what have you. But this was like a Star Wars film for me, just seeing these guys <laughs> these guys on screen together for the first time. It's like, screw Star Wars. This is it. This is and my I'm, Star Wars, damn this you. Is my... <laughs> this is my Star Wars prequel, damn you. I don't care about seeing where Darth Vader came from. I care about what Pacino and De Niro are doing on screen together. I care about two Italian-Americans sitting across <laughs> from each other, having coffee, telling each other they're going to take each other down. Um... And they will not hesitate for a second. Not for a second. Um, so yeah, so it was sort of and under the tutelage of Michael Mann, whose films I'd, you know, I'd, I'd loved The Last of the Mohicans, and um, I didn't mind Manhunter, um, but this was sort of before I really discovered him as 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 an auteur. So I was fascinated that he was the guy to get them together. Like there wasn't Scorsese, it wasn't Coppola, it wasn't you know any of the heavyweights, and. So when I, like, I was just bust, and whenever I saw the trailer, I was just kind of, ah. And Can we reflect, though, on 1994, yes. is mm. that the trailer, like, when we were in 1994, we didn't know how bad trailers were, and I think trailers are just so good now. Like, and, and I think a few people have played, like, I've watched the trailer many times as well, and I just think, mm. God, can someone, some internet boffin please recut a trailer? <laughs> like in the modern age of trailers, like where these guys are sitting at a coffee shop having a conversation and then interplaying in the conversation is this chaos that's around them because it mm. really, the, the current trailer, like just, it's the bad trailer voice. It's a VHS trailer at best. You know what I mean? Like it's the one you would find on a weekly DVD thing. I think the names on a, on a page of a variety magazine are so like much more thrilling because you're just like, oh my God, how did this happen? How did this happen? I must see this movie. And you're absolutely right. A lot of it was, how did this happen? Like, yeah. who, who, who wrought this chaos? But yeah, you're right. And it's not even the good trailer voice guy as well. It's no, not, it's, it's his not cousin or something. And it's not Peter <laughs> Cullen. And it's not like, it's just like, oh, no, the two greatest actors of the generation. generation. Yeah. And like, who's this guy? <laughs> it's like, you can't even get the Yeah. So I ended up, and, and yeah, I ended up seeing it at the time and it couldn't, 
possibly fulfill all of my hopes no and dreams. No way. You're of... a Godfather super fan. No way. Exactly. And 19, and it's just like, you just want, and it's, I came out going, you know, that was pretty good. And there were some amazing moments, but it wasn't the greatest film ever. And then I revisited a few years later and things kept kicking around in my head. And I've just loved it more and more ever since, particularly as I've, as I've gotten older. I'm sad to say though, it's been a long time since I've actually sat down and watched it. Um, I watched the minute that we're discussing and the minute before and the minute after and everything else is from memory. So, uh, strap right in. Uh, That is, that is is totally fine. So what we're going to do now, it's been a long intro. So what we're going to do is Paul and I are going to stop. We're going to pause. You guys are going to listen. We're going to watch this minute together. We're going to come back and talk about it. But just for context, we are sitting there. We're in the restaurant and Neil has in the just preceding seconds prior to this minute, Neil has sort of been glancing around the table at all you know you know his kingdom if you like all that he surveys and his power and is feeling a little bit lonely and sort of wanders off to make a phone call and at the very beginnings of this minute we see hello hi it's me hey i was wondering if you'd go i've been busy can i see you i was afraid that was just the one night you know no, not for me it wasn't. Yeah, me neither. Can I fall by? Yeah. Okay, I'll see you in a little bit. So, Paul, a minute and and power shifting substantially. We start with the, you know, what I love in man is, and now even at the 55th minute, is seeing the devilishly fastidious detail of match cutting or even like thematically um, toning scenes. Like in this scene here, Neil with the blue background behind him. Mm. It just, it, that's what's so striking about the scene. We get into Edie's space, you know, she's in this sort of hippie artistic space mm. and, and uh, I have no, I have no idea what's on her computer. No, no, idea, no, no clue <laughs> what's on her computer. What is she working on? I have no idea. Some ancient 1995 version of Photoshop is what I've always <laughs> guessed. Like she's just in that and we can't see the detail. And obviously even with the beautiful crisp transfers that you watch, she can't catch it. But you no. know, we can talk more about her space and that sort of being a reflection of her character. But I just love so much that as soon as you see Neil, it's like this blue background, this sublime thing, this lure that he's constantly looking out to. It's like he's, you know, he's the, uh, couldn't be more of a man protagonist shrouded in mm. that blue sublime waiting there and, and having this conversation. What have you, what have you thought about this relationship? I love the fact that the cause, cause obviously Michael Mann's work has always been about the tension between the professional and the personal. Yes. And he's always kind of like these you know, from thief on, it's these you know fastidious, obsessive professionals who uh, carve out a career to the complete exclusion of a personal life until they meet somebody, or they or they with somebody but not really with them, and it's like 
this constant tension of how can I devote devote myself to both? How can I be, you know, how, and and almost always the professional wins out over the personal. Yes. Um, or, and this or, is... or they just f- f- sometimes limp, limp along. <laughs> like yes. in some of these relationships, they just limp along or you've got to be complicit. Like Elaine, who's Tom Sizemore's Michael Torito's wife, you know, she's kind mm. of complicit. She's keeping the stakes in the freezer as, as I think it gets said uh, at, in a later minute. But like, that's what it is. It's this weird, like you have to acknowledge that, oh, okay, well, this is just my life now. You know, I'm 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 yeah. a passenger essentially. Well, they're around the table, and like you know, it's like here's the earrings, and and De Niro's like, don't tell anyone where you've got them. You know, it's like they're all complicit. They all know that this is you know, this, yeah. these have fallen off the back of a truck. Yeah. Um. But... Or, or, or or been tipped over by a truck, <laughs> smashed yeah. into and ripped out of the back of a truck. <laughs> fallen off the back of a truck, which was blown up by two grenades <laughs> and then assailed by a pack of hockey mask wearing, gun toting, you know, super thieves. Um. But so you, I feel like you're right like where we come into this scene is is you know it's his his merry men you know neil Mm. is sitting amongst his kind of kingdom and they've all got he's looking around and they've all got families and it's like and i think he's thinking at that moment it's like i they can do this why can't i do this like why can't i have what they have like they're they're all professionals they're my guys they're on the job and here they are with their wives and kids and and so I think he's sort of – it's a very opportune moment for him to kind of go out and, and make this call to Edie and it's to really, see whether this is something he can do. And it's really funny because you say – it's so it's so right. You see that professional v. personal tension writ all on, on his face. But he's got – this is what I love about his position. Like with his merry men, because he's the leader, he can't do that in public. He kind of yes. has to retreat to this like sanctuary space, and that's why the tone of the blue is so perfect. With you know Dante Spinotti, you know framing yeah. him so lovely there as as he did in his apartment. But he's like, I need to take this in my private space because also there's a little you know there's I love in this scene and sort of not to talk too much about other minutes, but there's a couple of like little electrical charges of hypocrisy. One of the beautiful mm. ones is that Neil's constantly telling everyone that he's involved with that you can't have the attachments. And in this moment, he relinquishes that philosophy mm. just he or, or relaxes, sorry, should I say. It's probably better to say that because he relaxes that philosophy and he goes, you know what? And it, uh, exactly what you said, Paul. He goes, you know what? I, 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 I think I can do this. I think there's room for a person at my side of this table. And, yeah. But at the same time, you love. I love that you look around and you see Chris with Charlene, and like a couple of minutes ago in the movie, or earlier on in the day in the timeline of the movie, he's like telling her to clean up and go home after shagging <laughs> Hank Azaria's, you know, dirty um, interstate salesman. Um, so there's so you know there's so yeah there's, there's no a, perfection here. No, you know? no, as much as he might idealize it, I think around that table, that merry man piece is is you know that's a really cool almost subjective viewpoint that we take for a second where it's just perfect idealized fantasy group mm. of this of these folks for a split second and then we're 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 with Neil and Edie having this conversation cuz I've always wrestled with and I'm interesting to interested to ask you mm-hmm. and I honestly fluctuate I don't know if Neil knows that Edie that it's that it's destined to fail and mm. nor do I know whether Neil knows if he'll ever see her again so uh, as much as there's that beautiful romantic moment where he wraps the glass after their first night together, mm. like a serviette, and he leaves quietly, um, it's 
I, I always wrestle with, does he ever know that he's going to talk to her again? Or is this moment like the perfect moment where he says, no, I think I can. I think I can relax my rules. To, where he to sort of discovers this... it. Where yeah. it's sort of like, okay, or do you think he's planned this all along at yeah, some point, I, but he's I, just not getting to it? Yeah, I don't know, boy. I, 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 I almost feel like flow. it occurs to him in this moment. It's like it's something he wants and something he yearns for, but he just assumes that, you know, it's part of the job. No, there's no there's no one night. And that's when she she says, I thought it'd be a one night type of thing. And then yes. he pauses and is kind of like, yeah, me too. And it's not, yeah, it's like, and it's sort of like he... He seems to think about it. He goes, you know what? Yeah, I don't want this to be a one-night thing either. And I think it's sort of – I think he, I think there's a part of him that's sort of making it up as he goes along, which yes. is new territory for him because he doesn't make anything up as he goes along. It's, yeah, it's, it's really breaking new ground. It's like the first time that he's been genuinely uh, – he's genuinely just uh, been spontaneous because mm, it doesn't yeah. seem like spontaneity occurs Comes naturally to, to him. No, no, <laughs> no. no not at all. Yeah, no. Uh, there's something I love during this scene too. And it's a subtle placement thing. It's it's when he's talking to her against that blue background. And I mean, and uh, you could, I'm sure you probably have done a thesis on you know how blue is used in this movie. Um, <laughs> Not yet. But it's constantly throughout <laughs> it. But uh, there's the next one. Um, <laughs> I'm not going he's... to colours. This will not be one colour minute. It will not. <laughs> there's a, there's, it, is rich, one... it is rich enough just just to men- mention it as it comes along. The different co- the use of colour um, or, yeah. or lack of colour. I was thinking this could be your blue period break, uh, Blake. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, but it's he's speaking to her at the start, and then when she mentions the one night thing, he goes, "Yeah, I don't think I know that." He, they, the excuse is that an, a waitress goes past him, but he shifts around to the other side of the screen, blocking. Because, because this is the yes. thing. Because the whole for the first part of the scene, he's De Niro's against the blue, and we see the crew out the door, yes, uh, in the background around the table. And then when he sort of starts speaking softer and starts getting more into the conversation, he moves around and blocks them. And it's almost like, okay, this is there's the two sides, and it's like, you know what, fuck it, no, the other side doesn't exist right now. Right now, there's just you and me. Right now, you're just the destination. You're the island. You're the holiday. Yeah, it's 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 me and you, Edie. None of this in the background. You know, like they don't matter. So good. And it's, so it's subtle like a, though, so subtle yes. and just such a, but really deft, like a really great decision for like the staging of a scene, but also great for him because it makes sense mm. for the character movement. Like you said, to hide it, to conceal, he doesn't want yes. people to catch what he's saying. Yeah, exactly. Like, and have somebody walk past him. So it's like, oh, okay, I've got to move. But, but also it's like, I don't want people to hear what I'm saying. And I'm completely blocking out this other part of my life that threatens to destroy this part. Um, and I think that that's a really, uh, yeah, really beautiful thing. And of the whole minute, that's the thing that struck me the most. Like that was the thing that was like, oh wow, that's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not, and it's, there's two, there's two minutes. One happens with a body moving and one happens with mm. a, a really deft camera move, which we can ch- come up to here where like power mm. shifts you know, massively. So the power is, you know, Neil firstly sort of controlling the situation, you know, you know, I didn't think it was a one night thing and then revealing, you know, when he's, when he's more vulnerable, he sort of turns his back on his crew. And what's so wonderful, they walk out and they look like, you know, it follows the great line. They leave this restaurant, they walk out, almost looks like the exit 
of I don't know, like a, a classic film premiere in the eighties or something like yeah, that. People yeah. walk out with these big coats and fur and bling scarves, and scarves yeah. and stuff. And in just, LA, in LA, you know, and so it must be <laughs> it's like, like you don't need furs. No, you don't need furs. But you, know, the desert might be cold. I don't know. Let's just say it could be winter. <laughs> the, or the whatever the mildest winter is possible in LA. Um, they walk out and then the camera just clicks. It's immediately to a downward point of view mm. shot, and 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 it's just underscored with this lovely little throwaway line from Vincent Al Pacino's character. It's like it's a goddamn convention. Like <laughs> yeah. it's just so perfect because that's when the that transition the power shifts. Like for for the entire time, like all the way up into this fifty fifth minute. Um, Neil's team and crew have had the upper hand. And even though we saw Vincent catch a lead with Michael Torito's character, we don't know how it's manifested itself until this second. Like, bang. Mm. Halfway through this minute, it completely flips, and we're looking down on the crew, and we see these guys observing. And it's just such a nice, like... Like, oh, isn't this, this, this is a fantasy land. Neil's in a fantasy land. He's relinquishing mm. his vulnerability to a fantasy land. And now we're back out of romantic fantasy land into being hunted. Yeah. And being watched from behind a cage. Yes. That is a really great little framing that it does there. They've got this beautiful, like, you know, walking out like you're at a film premiere or something, uh, or something like that, or out of a restaurant in a, like, out of the Copa in Goodfellas is yeah, kind of yeah. what it feels like. Out of the Copa and bang, hello. Just cops looking, hiding behind a cage in that dominant Oops. position up there, looking down, starting to name all the players that we're playing with yeah. here. And, um, it's like almost like I don't know, like the Scooby Gang or something as well. Yeah. The way they're all lined up in a row as well. <laughs> they're all peering out. Yeah, um, it's it's like all the teams have to uh, stand across from each other to toss the coin. Now you know it's like it's like <laughs> yeah. oh the, te- the 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 teams can finally be introduced and this is where the game really kicks off. Both of these crews being pitted against one another because right now they've been sort of you know one's been so heavily on the tail and right now it's like this is where we start to you know, ensnare them. I love that. Yeah, yeah. So we start to close the gap. I love that Michael Mann knows what he has too with the De Niro Pacino thing. Like the way he keeps the way he teases so much and oh has my them God, does he in what? the same sphere and has them the same and like leads and it's like they're almost in they're not and they almost see each other and then they don't. And there's it all leading to that coffee shop scene. Um it's and then, you know, after that and then finally at the end. It's so genius. Uh, it's so kind of like it's and and also in a weird way sort of fan service it's like yeah i know what you got i know what everyone wants everyone wants these two <laughs> motherfuckers to go toe to toe and i'm not going to give it to you nope. until this point and then i'm going to snatch it away again and and, I, and i'm going to give you a scene where they're absolutely 100% in front of each other but yes. but i'm still going to toy with you and make you think that there's a possibility that they're not and right? when they and when they're in front of each other i'm going to make it as casual as Oh, these guys do this all the time. These yes. guys could, these guys, you know, outside this movie probably do catch up in a coffee shop and you wish you were there. You wish you were there to see them together. Can I tell you, I mean, again, we're jumping to another minute, but can I tell you how much the over the shoulder composition of that scene drove me crazy at the time? I bet like, it did. That literally could be anyone's friggin' back. Like, you could have <laughs> shot this with anyone. Where is, I'm so glad that one photo exists. 
the one yeah, wide at, shot. And yeah, it existed a, in, a, in an age before Photoshop. Yeah, there's that beautiful wide shot, which they were photographed from behind the third camera that was set up. But then there's another great shot I've encountered, uh, you know, during my research of Heat, which is like... Um, man talking to De Niro and Pacino at the table and there's like a wonderful little shot of the trio the the little trio there just sort of discussing the scene and talking through it because I believe and I'm gonna I might get it wrong now but it's either the 11th or the 17th take I think it might be the 11th take um that that the majority of this um the, the majority of that conversation came out but i you know one thing is you know sorry to talk about another minute but this is what happens guys you <laughs> listen to this show for this right um, there's 170 uh, of them you're probably gonna hit you're gonna one. hear some stuff but i just i love that absolutely agree with you when i was younger um you know i, I you obviously and this is beginning of the internet they were never in the same room you know, yeah. they were never in the same room. It was all BS, da 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 da, because um, <laughs> you don't see them together. And uh, the thing I love though is when you do watch it, as especially older, and you watch it on a beautiful print, like that's you know on the Blu-ray transfers, it's undeniable that that's Pacino's movement. Like if that was a fake mm. actor, like the the there's a, a scene where Pacino leans in, and you watch his head come into into De Niro's frame, and you're just like. The, that that movement is so Pacino that you couldn't fake it unless it was someone yep. who was his stand-in for twenty years. And, <laughs> um, you couldn't fake the way that he comes in and floats in and out of the scene. It's just another little bit of acting business that Mr. Pacino sort of. I mean, just. I mean, it's stunning. Like it's just a it stunning. It's just a yeah. stunning. You know, a real wily sort of um, seasoned performer knows to really impose in on someone else's scene and be doing some other business to really influence the way they're interacting with you. And it's just so amazing. But so yeah. we get we get that here. I love how you call them the Scooby Gang. That's so fantastic. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I think I think you know when there's big when there's these big encounters, you know. I don't know if there's an equivalent in 2018. Like, is there an mm. equivalent in 2018? I mean, I know we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's sort of mm. um, hippie era uh, sort of mystery film that is around the Manson murders that, mm. that is going to star Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio and, Pitt. And, and Pitt. And he's he said this is the biggest encounter of two, you know, on-screen leading men since Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which... Um, oh, I think that's... <laughs> De Niro and Pacino sitting there going, oh. Oh, hey, Quentin, oh. What's the matter with you? No, he's... Some kind of maniac. I think his favourite... I think Tarantino's favourite man film is The Insider, so I don't know if he's like... I think he's talking about mm. beautiful, maybe classic leading beautiful men, Paul Newman. Maybe. And, and, and Redford um, um, being, being their equivalents. But yeah, I don't know if there's two actors that are working today that... I'm desperate to see across from one another who've been in such dynamic films that you're like, oh my god, I would, I would yearn to have these two no. guys on screen with each other. And even DiCaprio and Pitt is a great match, but at the same time, like, there's so many, like, you almost feel like they already have been in a film together. Yeah, you go, like, you they haven't, feel, they haven't been yeah. in a film. Like, you sort of scratch your head, but there's no troll IMDb. It's like I'm sure they've been in something <laughs> nice. together, and it's like, no, okay, they haven't. Okay, it's. Yeah, it's curious. Uh, I'm I'm the same. I, I think I don't know. It's I think the act because the accent has gone off the star system so much over the last ten years, and yeah. we've you know we now follow brands. It's all about oh now it's the film in which Iron Man and Doctor Strange are meeting, not yes. you know Robert Downey or, Jr. and Benedict Cumberbatch or, or two Sherlock's. I mean, I was going to mm. say uh, you, you've dr- dragged us into Tumblr territory because of course Tumblr. <laughs> 
takes all of the things that you want oh, to see and then turns it into fanfic. You know, it's, it's <laughs> just like, no, stop, please stop. Um, but yeah, no, it's such a, you know, and, and in this scene, I think that's, I think that's such the temptation um, mm. to when you've got big performers like this. And like you said, there's something so deft about I'm going to, so this is one layer. We're seeing them through a cage. So there's a lot of, you know, metaphorical kind of uh, 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 staging at play. And then mm. you can sort of take it as exactly like you said, this is the pitting these two crews against one another and we're literally putting a physical boundary in place, even though the police seem to have the upper hand, like literally and yes. figuratively in this, in this particular scene, they've got the upper hand or at least man's mm. making us feel that way. But I just, yeah, it's really strange. Exactly as you said, is like, even in that moment, um, they're sort of sizing one another up, but it, it's close enough that, you know, it's almost like the, the people in the front row of the cinema are talking. You know, mm. like, you, know you can look to yeah. the side. It's almost like you're catching a sideward glance at the people. You're, you're meant to be with that police crew as you size these it's- guys up. It's mystery science theatre, but with cops. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. Except there's not as many good accents, right? There's, no. not, as many, there's not, good, not as many good impressions. I didn't hear yeah, one. The filmmaking's much better, you know? It is much better. It, yeah, we, we, can, we can say that. It is much better. But the uh, thing is, that, that gets me too as well, it's, um, it's that... that thing where it's like it's you know it's the calm before the storm and but back to man's theme of professionalism it's like here's a point where the crew a a rare moment where the crew are just sitting and enjoying themselves Mm. and they're just having a nice time and then right at the front the law never sleeps yep the other professional he's not with his family they're not with their families they're not having a nice time they're all lined up like the scooby gang looking through the car looking through the cage ready to pounce upon you know studying their prey it's like it's like when one professional, ta- you know, takes a rare time off, don't expect, you know, it's like, yeah, it's this whole thing. It's like, yeah, we're not sleeping, pal. We're still here and we're coming for you. No. And also the the cool thing is that they're never going to sleep, but also they're not going to make an unnecessary move. It's the same ethos that gets sort of played around with, which is in mm. so many lesser films, the police would bust that restaurant up. Yeah. They just bust it up and they'd be suspects. And they'd, and they'd give them that. And one thing I love, and I'd, and look, I have no... I, this is one thing I don't prescribe to know, um, is I don't know if this would be a real maneuver, in, mm. an investigation maneuver. And I can tell you, Paul, so folks listening, um, I've actually got a, a detective, professional detective, who I'll have to redact his surname because he's an active detective who's going to be coming <laughs> on the show to tell me if any Please. of the tradecraft is rings true other than just mm. thinking that the movie like liking the movie but talking about this tradecraft but I love here that they just are here to observe these are key suspects mm. we do not want to spook them we we think mm. they're the guys um, and obviously with them you know with with uh, taking out the um, the uh, armored car um, security guards they've got a warrant to sort of tail them and, and to surveil them and all that sort of thing but I just love mm. that in so many lesser movies they, they haven't got the patience uh, to 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 just go. We're just going to watch, observe, mm. and report right now on what they're we doing. We haven't, we haven't got them doing anything either. You no. know, they're just walking out of a dinner. It's like if you bust them out, it's like, well, what have we done? You know, yeah. and then they'll, oh, you saw my car thing. It's like, well, where's your proof? Give me my lawyer. They can afford expensive lawyers. They get off. You know, yeah. you've you've got to play this long game. And I think, particularly now, like, and at that time in particular, it was uncommon for a big budget 
cops and robbers film to show that kind of restraint. I think now we're used to things like Homicide Life on the Street and The Wire. Yes. That now we're... And an, assembly of a case like is, that. an assembly of a case is like a season, sometimes yeah. two. Zodiac as well. Yeah, exactly. So we're used to the long game of an investigation. In Aren't they just so much more now. engrossing though? Everything you just said. Absolutely. Every, like they're just getting into the nitty gritty of the procedural and also scrutinizing and going over and over. That's the, you know, they're the great detectives that you you love also the ones that have many failures you know there's kind of they're they're, they're the funnest they're the funnest to sort of tussle with absolutely yeah i i love following that and that that forensic kind of thing but again that that level of detail is very michael mann it's very much his process um he's someone that and i'd love to hear a detective talk about this stuff and in terms of what its verisimilitude may or may not be (laughs) yes because because michael mann is always held up as somebody who is incredibly well researched and extremely detailed and like i remember reading an anecdote coming out of this uh, heat like it was something about like the door that pacino throws henry rollins through is some sort of flywire or something and that had to be very specific (laughs) i was like what the hell we're talking about flywire on a door yeah and on a window you know it it would it wouldn't surprise me he spent you know almost six months every Friday and Saturday night answering random um, answering random radio calls with an LAPD officer who was his, one of his key consultants oh, on the film wow. to find the locations that we saw. Oh, shit. So, like, I was just going to say that, that kind of, like, for six months just on locations. Forget the story that had been gestating since the 70s. Since know. 1979, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, I, I... For, forget that. It's the... That that this thing, you know, it, it's 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 all over the park. That kind of method, it's method, mm. it's method everything. It's not just method acting and method directing. It's method location scouting. It's me- <laughs> you know, I think he imposes the method probably greater than anyone. Like because it's any performer, that, any any performer that goes in there is imposed a method. Like I think Chris Hemsworth even learned how to write code. Like Jesus, like for Black Hat, which is just it doesn't surprise me though. Is, being in a man set. No, no. Uh, there's something. Jeez. There's something special. There's something really special about the level of detail that's innate, and mm. there's something really weird. Um, yeah, there's something really weird about um, that. I don't know. It's like you would know now as a filmmaker. There's something weird if someone's got an expertise in something, or there's a pre-existing relationship between two performers, and that little indefinable piece of chemistry or something is mm. there. There's something there, and you don't. If someone said to you, Paul, I need you to sort of explain that magic, you're like, I can't explain it because it's something yeah. that exists in between every frame. It's not even captured. It's some strange magic. But yeah, I think that that's what man, what man has. And, and I think in in this scene, there's, you know, we and just to sort of cycle back, we talked about this hippie artistic space that Edie, Amy Brenneman's character's in, and it's mm. like. How much detail? I'm sure that that is probably some weird Photoshop. I was joking before from 1999, <laughs> but it probably is. It was probably yeah. a, it was probably a real design for a real band in LA at the time. And, yeah, uh, knowing and... man, it, it would be something. It's like, <laughs> so, no, you've got to really have this. You've got to really have this. Do. I need you to go to a you know an independent <laughs> graphic designer and get them to put all their pictures on the walls so that it can be absolutely perfect in every way. 
and and the, you know there's a reinforcing as well that they come from such different lives and different backgrounds like her apartment is just full of shit and and pictures and shelves and things on the shelves and things on the tables and and then you see you know Neil's place earlier and it's three just plates. sparse three plates yeah. <laughs> three plates <laughs> two coffee cups that's it that's, that's it that's all we got that's all we got guys that's all we got uh, and so it's that immediate contrast between, you know, who they are as well, which is really nicely done um, and very expedient. Um, but the thing that interests me is, like, I love the fact that Michael Mann's, like, his whole career has been about the, profess- the professional and the personal can't coexist. You know, the one ends up destroying the other. And yet he's been married since, like, 1974 or something to the same person. And, re- and, and has... Uh an extremely talented daughter, Amy Canan-Man, who is a second unit director on Heat and is also a director in her own right. Um, is it Texas on... Killing Fields? Yeah, Texas Killing Fields. And also she's mm. working a lot in TV. I think she's working on currently the uh, latest season of House of Cards is uh, where we'll find her credit. But yeah, working a lot in TV, much like her dad did, obviously. Michael Mann, yeah. hugely in TV. But but yeah, it's so funny. Um this is such a, you know, uh, it's like a self-referential thesis. Uh, maybe it's this is where he sort of gets out his crisis, the crisis mm. to, um, you know, the crisis to sort of uh, fulfill the, like his, you know, creative destiny, if you like. It's like this wrestle <laughs> of like wanting to immerse himself so completely um, and, and sort of in big bursts doing so, but then having to sort of expunge it and then, you know, get to the next project, get on to the next thing. It is, mm. it is... um. It's like a great thematic thing. And he has really worked... Uh, and, you know, until probably Blackout, I think every single one of his films, the you know, I, I would say the horrendously underrated Miami Vice. Um, I really enjoyed Public Enemies. Um, you know, he's he's got them all over. And, you know, The Insider is his other masterpiece, which happens in a couple of years after this, you know, 95, yes. 95, and then 97. He did have a good run. You know, you're 99, a 99, couple- actually. Oh, is it 99? Sorry. I, I yeah. Saw it. yeah, so he goes 95, 99. He's got 92 is Last of the Mohicans. So what yes. a freaking strong decade of films. And very... I just... Oh, sorry, keep going. No, no, I was just going to say strong. Go, go, go. You go. No, no, I'm just... Uh, like, how much do you think... Um, uh, it's only just occurred to me, I've, and I've never really read any interviews around this. How much must have Daniel Day-Lewis loved working with him? Oh, my like, God. Because you want to talk about two meeting a meeting of two you know detail obsessed minds and method madmen. Well, um, yeah, like, no, I feel like they just would have fed one another. Oh my god! That, I mean, that's why that movie has, although it's this big, gorgeous, sweeping romance. What's so amazing about it is that you know Daniel Day Lewis was probably really being able to fire a musket really yeah. far and throw a bloody throw a, probably speak, throw a tomahawk. You know, several native american dialects yeah. <laughs> and, and, and i think that and this is what like it's that it's so unfortunate because it's in pre-internet time but it'd be one of those amazing conversations to be like oh my god did like he live out in the woods and i think i think that's <laughs> some of the stories you know that he actually did live out in the woods and and things like that for god's sake if he's doing any phantom thread press pre-retirement can someone please <laughs> ask him some last of the making questions for yes, paul and i <laughs> We need to know. But you yeah. and Michael Mann, did you ju- did you drive each other crazy? Was it like was it like that episode of Seinfeld where he gets engaged to Jenny Garofalo and they're too much alike? <laughs> they're too much alike. Is it's it like, that look, like dating yourself, or is it like, this, this is or did so, you just feed each other? It was just wonderful. This is so perfect. 
we have to break up and never speak again. <laughs> you need to get out of my town. It's not big enough for the both of us. But no, I think I think that's you know I think that that's probably um, you know it's a, it's it'd be interesting to see how that actually fueled his career because that's a great way to mm. look at it is like you know getting his performers prepared to a level. Um, was already sort of in his ethos, but you know, working with someone like Daniel Day Lewis, obviously, and then even Russell Crowe at the time that they 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 intersected mm. was so fiercely of that school, um, being of kind of a Brando obsessive himself, was like you know that's the that's the perfect time for those guys to work together um, as well. Pretty strong, think... pretty pretty strong trio of films. You're a Coppola fan. The four greatest films, four of the hey. greatest American films ever made in a decade. He did four, so he did the Godfather. greatest decade in the history of cinema by any one filmmaker oh of course come at me film nerds no, i mean no, no no this is this is as they say in twitter parlance don't at paul and don't at me <laughs> there's never been a better stretch of four films ever stop everyone i mean there's been two great God, ones there's God. a lot you can bring up you can bring up you know bergman's 50s and wilder's 50s and so many other you know but and Jeez. and you could even and mean, you could even go John Ford's fifties. I think his most interesting films are in his fifties, and and there's a lot of yeah. filmmaking craft there. But Coppola, I mean, bang, even bang, Tarantino's nineties. But but yeah, but I mean Coppola. I mean, you just got that Godfather, Godfather Two conversation in Apocalypse Now. I mean, I mean, they're Jesus. almost all game changers. Every one of them. And the one it's... that everyone sleeps on is still the conversation, and then they see it like a decade, you know, like a, you know, a decade later than their friends, and they're like, "Oh my god, have you seen the conversation? That movie is amazing." And you're like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's pretty brilliant." <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's it's so interesting how pe- you know these filmmakers hit that purple patch. But no, no, that's a great con- you know that's a that is a great conversation. You know, forgive the pun, but it's a great conversation mm-hmm. to think about. Is like how does how does man make you know remaking a classic. Um, you know, like Last of the Mohicans, um, mm. working with someone like Daniel Day-Lewis, um, what does that do to inspire the fact, you know, because obviously Heat was um, first uh, tried as LA Takedown, as a TV movie that was eventually well, going to come to series. I was going to say I admired, uh, I thought Robert, I thought Al Pacino and Robert De Niro were pretty pretty good in stepping into the big shoes of Scott Plank and Alex MacArthur. <laughs> Scott Plank and Alex MacArthur said no one ever. That sentence has <laughs> never been said. And it was said here. <laughs> We're going to have to be, get, go back to the video ref, go back to the bunker. That sentence has never been said and will never be said again. <laughs> and I had to be the one to say oh, it. Oh, like... you're perfect. So perfect. But, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that he's like, you know what? I'm going to remake my own thing because I it, it, what it didn't that itch wasn't scratched in in the TV landscape. Mm. I well, it didn't it. go to series. I think he no. made it as a pilot for a prospective series, and it didn't get picked up. And it's like, oh well, that's not going to happen. But I really have this. It's obviously an itch he needed to scratch. Big time, big time. A story he needed to tell, and and the fact that he got to tell it as you know the ultimate LA cops and robbers story. You know, like on the biggest scale possible. You know, like it's like super cop versus super thief. Both of them have incredibly awesome crews. I love that Pacino's character. Like, I remember being dazzled at the time, like, and thinking, is there a cop in LA that can actually do this? Like, the the guy would literally, he's like a god. Like, he literally just waves his arm and a helicopter appears, you know? Yeah. And he's got. He always has a crew of 12 apostles walking, flanking him wherever he goes. <laughs> he's like, got it's a... like, is he a G- Officer Jesus? Like, he's got, an, he's got an entourage, dude. He's an LA cop, you know? They all have entourages. 
Isn't that what that show's just... about? You know what's so funny? This is the osmosis of this series. So Lee Zachariah joined us early on in in the one who's that? Journey. I don't. He. I don't. Paul sorry, does don't not. Know him. Paul doesn't know him. But look, just to edu- <laughs> just to talk about they actually hosted a show together for many years. Um, an amazing show. But what's so funny is the osmosis between you two. Maybe it's you two hanging around because Lee said, to, and you've said it in a roundabout way. It was like Lee said, Blake. This movie is Batman v Superman for yes. fil- for film geeks from the seventies <laughs> because we didn't care about Batman v Superman. We cared about De Niro v Pacino. Absolutely, that's absolutely correct, and that's what it was to me at the time. It's funny. It's like I, whenever you get two like shitty stars teaming up in a movie now, I, I always call it the heat of bad movies, like Double Team. Uh, <laughs> like, it's like this is the heat of bad movie. It's like it's those guys. You know, if they ever put. You know, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's become its own lexicon now. You know, it's like heat is the pinnacle for me of I think, too, going back to your point earlier about you can't think of an example, an analog today where you'd be expecting these two stars to get together. And I think it's because De Niro and Pacino were two actors whose work was so they were in the same ballpark for so long. Yes. That, you know, they would work that sort of heavy drama 70s new hollywood mob movies and they'd always and for 20 years they they uh existed in the same biosphere and worked with the same filmmakers and but they just and i think a lot of it is around that i think a lot of it is just like how come we've never seen these two in a film together like how has that happened yeah and it was like i guess it happened way too late for stallone and schwarzenegger but that would have been the other one yes yeah, like the, the, that's, that's the 80s equivalent. Up. That's the 80s yeah. action hero equivalent. Absolutely agree. And I, think, I think if Stallone and Schwarzenegger had teamed up in, you know, the 90s, in the late 90s, then that would have been oh my God. this. Yeah. You know, it even been early like 2000s. Even early 2000s, band. you've got much more of a chance of, like, the Expendables being, you know, stratospheric as opposed to yeah. just competent and solid. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, well, by the time the Expendables and Escape Plan rolled around, it's like, well, they're both in their 60s and you know it's like they've they're neither of them have had a hit in 20 years and you know it's all a bit sad whereas this is kind of like these two pacino had finally won his oscar you know they were both coming out of and i remember thinking at the time that it at it only it cost 60 million to make it grossed 67 million in the u.s and 120 million um overseas um like everywhere but the u.s and I remember thinking 67 felt quite low. Like, I was like, oh, that was, you know, it was a little bit disappointing. And then you look at their box office records. It was Pacino's third highest grossing film after The Godfather and Dick Tracy, which were both <laughs> kind of blockbuster movies. They were. So it was, so it was essentially other like The Godfather, which was his own phenomenon. Like, his, and it was, you know, and Dick Tracy, which he's a villain and he's kind of like. He's cartoony. So it, it's, 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 it's like a proto comic book movie. Yeah, so it's essentially his highest-grossing film that he's headlining, you know. And then Pacino, uh, De Niro, was his fourth highest-grossing film, and his highest-grossing film at that point was Cape Fear, which was only seventy-nine million. So, you know, the years of of light comedy death, but blockbuster grosses in the Fockers movies were still a few years away. Still a ways so, away, yeah. So, sort of, you know, like the untouched. I think it was um, um, uh, Backdraft, The Untouchables, yeah, and Backdraft, Cape Fear. Backdraft made some money. Backdraft definitely yeah. made some money. But, but they were all like 79, 77, 76, and this is 67. So it was actually kind of on par with the maximum that those guys could bring at the box office at that point. Yeah. So it was kind of like, oh, no, that pretty much fulfilled its prophecy. 
Yeah. You know, it was as big as you could probably reliably expect it to be. And what's funny is that we we now are in, you know, the nearly 25 years on territory. And for for a movie that's inimitable, I, I, like I'm firmly of the opinion that this movie is inimitable. And mm. the only, the closest that has ever come is that Chris Nolan made a movie, little movie called The Dark Knight, which is basically, yes. <laughs> basically heat as a superhero movie and, and wrote it into, you know, talk about one, like one of the highest grossing movies of all time and mm. sort of retold the story with the same sort of drama and ethos and people praise The Dark Knight for all the things that it does wonderfully. But it really is like, that's the only other movie that I feel even comes close um, and and the Dark Knight is no heat, um, but it's like now you know almost twenty five years on, it's still so firmly in the conversation, is reemerging in the conversation constantly, going wow, this movie is really special, and it's something to savor, and it's like you know forget a sixty seven million dollar box office score back yeah. then, it's because no one's talking about Cape Fear, you know, no, one, no. no one's talking, nobody's talking about Backdraft, and no one's no. talking about the scent of a woman for God's sake, where he won his Oscar, no one's talking about that. <gasps> But oh, can we talk about no Oscar nominations? Yeah, we what? can. Has oh. anybody like like I mean, look, I I I jumped off the Oscar train several years ago. I just watch it out of morbid curiosity these days. But at the time Oscars mattered to me and seeing Heat come up with Zilch, like nothing no. for cinematography, nothing for editing, nothing for writing, nothing for any of the actors involved. Um was just it's like it's, one of the, it's baffling. It's like, how did this thing get zero Oscar nominations? And Michael T. Williamson was cast in Heat. This is a behind-the-scenes story. It was cast in Heat after being snubbed by the Oscars for Forrest Gump. He yes. was not nominated. So Michael Mann and Al Pacino, who love him, and said they actually had another star in the role who oh, was wow. cast. I don't know who that was, but they paid them out and Holy hired shit. him. So, like, that's how my... And, you know, not in the Oscar conversation, absolutely flabbergasting, especially for... You can't tell me that in 95 there was a better Best Supporting Actress than Ashley Judd. Like, that performance mm, is... I mean, terrific. just even as a... You know, there's... And cinematography, come on. Come yeah, on, people. Yeah. Sound, I mean, cinematography sound, sound design? Sound yes. design? Come on. Yeah. Come Things on, like that in particular, like even, okay, look, I know it's a strong year. There was, you know, Apollo 13 and there was Braveheart and there was all that sort of big jazz, but like, but to say cinematography and sound design at the very least, oh, at the very or, least, or score, score is brilliant. Elliot Goldenfall Elliot Goldenfall Goldenfall score. score. Yep. Stunning. It's like, it, it's like, come on, you got to throw out a couple of bones. Like it's just, it, it might be one of the greatest Hollywood films to not get an Oscar nomination, and ever. it's an LA crime story. I just yes. it, like it's talk about bait. I mean, it is bait. Like later on, you're like, wait, two famous Hollywood actors coming together, yeah. both from the two biggest, you know, two of the biggest best pictures ever. You know, the 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 sort of defining Hollywood movies mm. um, coming together in an LA crime movie that is just stacked with actors, like character actors. Phenomenal people all working across the board, and one of the greatest casts, like in terms of depth chart, like oh. that roster of actors is one of the 
three and or look, four greatest in movie history. And we're talking about, you know, Avengers Infinity War came out this, you know, the, the week that we're recording it came out. Yep. And people are talking about, hey, there was, you know, 70-odd speaking roles of these characters that we've known over the films. He has 78 speaking roles. Yeah. And 30 of them are people who are, like... 30 you know, of you them are down, very memorable. 30 of them you, are you know, very you, memorable. You've got some of the greatest actors of the of the generation at the top. And then you've got... You know, you drill down to Tom Sizemore when he was great. Yeah, you know, I was such Kevin, a Sizemore fan. And in the Kevin 90s. Gage, Kevin Gage, who just comes in he's, and just blows everyone's socks he's off. He's so good, and there's some of that we didn't really see as much of. No, he didn't do, um, didn't do much. Film. Didn't do much before or after this one. There wasn't. No. This is his, this is his big blip on the radar, and and uh, him as Wayne Grow is terrific. Oh, it's so but it's good. that. And, but you know you've got John Voight and you've got um, you've got Hank Azaria and you've got William Fickner and you've got Henry Rollins and you've got like and it's just it's and you just keep digging and digging and digging and, and it's just astonishing um, the the de- like it's like and, there's something like yeah twenty five names or something and they're all people you would watch in a movie immediately and and the power is I suppose that's what we're talking about before and not existing these days of like imagine Michael Mann who was already sort of a very bankable filmmaker to that point. People wanted to work with him, had a really great reputation from particularly Miami Vice, you know, kicking off a lot of really monster careers um, in special guest star performances there. But imagine him just walking into a, to a studio and then going, hey, I'm Michael Mann, I'm a filmmaker, this is my script, it's an LA crime story, and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino are attached. That's like, that's the, the, the allure of that is like people thinking that they're going to be in the next Godfather as well. You know, like, oh my God, yeah. these two guys are together, I'm in. What? What actor in 1995 does not want to immediately be on that team? Oh my god! Oh my god! It's like, like it's like we're going to the Olympics, right? <laughs> we've got Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and, and Michael Jackson Phelps, Johnson. and we've got Michael Phelps. Do you, you want to be on this team or not? <laughs> As like, fuck, we, like, even if I do nothing, we're going to win. You know, what I mean? it's just like I'm, I'm happy to ride I the bench. To get to work with these two. I'll be in the team photos. I'll get the water. I'm good. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm going to pester Paul as I'm going to pester Lee. I'm going to I'm going to arrange this. There will be a one <laughs> heat minute. Hell is for hyphen. It's classic, super like collision. Batman v Superman <laughs> heat. I will get Paul Anthony Nelson and Lee Zachariah, and I will be Michael Mann, and we will get them together. <laughs> and I think maybe I can pull them back together to talk about one minute of the heat infamous conversation paul i'm putting i'm i'm, I'm asking Ooh. you now on this on this one heat minute can i secure yourself and the services of your former co-host mr lee zachariah to come th- back on the show to talk about that conversation i think that is a wonderful treat i think you yeah i think you should tease it and then like have us just meet for a couple of minutes in the room and then separate <laughs> again i think it's a great idea i'm just disappointed i got to the end of this and didn't even bring up where is Amy Brenneman these days? She used to be amazing. Oh my I... god, Amy Brenneman like... is phenomenal. She did that show Judging it's... Amy for a long time, and she's really uh, she's really turned into an activist. I've been following a lot right. of her online, um, and you know, uh, standing out in solidarity for a bunch of these amazing women. Uh, you know, Ashley Judd particularly, who was sort of in mm. the wave of the Me Too movement. So she's been around, but I, I don't know if she does as much performing as she used to. But in this. In this movie, she is fantastic, and she's outstanding because she's on a different wavelength to everyone else in this movie. Like Ashley Mm. Judd is intense and ferocious, and like one of the rare, if only, person who stands up to Neil McCall in this movie besides Vincent. Um, And you then get Brenneman, who 
is on something complete, you know, something completely tangential. And I remember there's a, an amazing in the Heat 20th anniversary re-release discussions. There was a couple of Q and A's. Amy Brennan was there, and you know, oh, great. and she was talking to man, and she said something to the effect of, "Wow, this this girl's fucked up." Like basically, just going, "This girl must be fucked up to go for this guy." And man looked yeah. at her very sort of very seriously and said, "No, she loves him." And so huh. I think her performance is a collision of those two perspectives. Like it's a very mm. romantic, you know, this is a girl who is genuine, you know, it's in the words. She's genuinely lonely. Um, she's finding some, some comfort um, in, this, in this, uh, this man who just sort of blows into town, this random sort of stranger, um, and is finding some comfort and, and finding, you know, underneath the facade, there's someone there that she could care about. But at the same time, I think that especially when she realizes... Um, and it's going to come in later minutes of the discussion. And I'm really looking forward to talking about it is there's just something so profound in some of her, just, just her gaze. Like when she mm. realizes that he's kind of betrayed her trust, there's something so unbelievable that's going on with her performance that, you know, she was never utilized given a script of this good. I don't think again, I'd no. saw her in her career and it's just really a shame. It's like when I look at Ashley Judd in this movie, I'm like, how does Ashley Judd not like have 10 Oscars? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she, well, she I mean, did a couple well, of other good of movies. Partly, unfortunately with the me too um, stuff that's come out about it, you know, oh, yeah. with Harvey Weinstein, Ashley Judd, I think we know what happened to poor Ashley, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, Definitely. Harvey started a blacklist, um, but um, and she should have gone on to be in oh. many more things. I mean, you know, she was being considered for Lord of the Rings, you know, like yes. it's, you know, she, she was going on to have a massive career and then dickhead got in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, but, but Amy, but watching it at the time, Amy Brenneman was, her performance was something I really, that really moved me even yes. as a, you know, 20 year old, um, dude, cinephile, <laughs> um, I, I thought she, her performance was really beautiful. And, yeah, the screen kind of misses her a bit. I, you know, her intelligence and sensitivity. Well, guys, we're going to wrap it up there. But thank you, Paul, so much for coming on the show. I've teased something, um, a, a hyphenate reunion um, for one heat minute for some of that conversation. So I'll throw it out there into the universe and we'll see uh, what catches up and, and see if Kate Manolini's open just one more time for us to record there together. Um Thank you so much for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. Well done on Trench. Hoping to see it in Sydney, but if not, see it on Home Vid. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I'm uh, so happy to have been invited and, and to geek out with you at long last. This has been a blast. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and look, if look, I like Lee. He's a fun co-host, but if it gets in my way, I will not hesitate. Not for, for a, a second. second. Not for a second. He is going down. <laughs> what if I got to put you down? Um, which is what I can't wait for this this banter again um, guys thank you again for listening and subscribing to One Heat Minute um, as, I, as I say you're probably sick of hearing me say it but it's the funnest thing I've ever done because of conversations like this um, thank you to Garth Franklin for our web design Paul Davies for our music and guys if you want to follow anything One Heat Minute it's just oneheatminute.com um, if you want to hit me up on socials the best place to find me is Twitter that's at Blakey's Batman if you want to find Paul and anything that he's doing um, just at Cinema Viscera, which is uh, Cinema and Viscera, V-I-S-C-E-R-A. Um, so that's probably the best place, Paul. Anywhere else, so cinemaviscera.com. Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. Yep, cinemaviscera.com. So if you need anything, Paul, look there or on the Twitter sphere. He will have a chat with you. Um, 
thank you so much again and uh, well guys we'll catch you for the next episode the 56th minute of Michael Mann's Crime Opus Heat catch you next time thank you